You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. So good to be here with you today. Have you ever heard of an F5 tornado? Yeah, right? It's pretty serious stuff. If you don't know this, uh, there's a meteorologist by the name of Ted Fujita, and he came up with the way to rank or grade tornadoes back in the 70s. And since then, we've made some modifications. But in essence, it has to do with how strong the winds are and then how much damage it causes. And then after a tornado goes through, they decide what the ranking was. If Wikipedia is trustworthy, <clears throat> do what you want with that, there have been 59 F5 tornadoes since the 1950s in the United States, which is actually... Not a huge number, but it is a huge amount of devastation when it occurs. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in May 22nd, 2011, an F5 went through Joplin, Missouri. I don't know if you guys remember that. One of our former staff members, Bo Hamlin, if you were here for that, uh, Bo actually had family. He was from Joplin. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, his own kids were in Joplin when it occurred. They were in the basement of grandma and grandpa, and uh, they were stuck on the other side of the bridge trying to get there. It came in at 5.41 p.m., and uh, went for 32 straight minutes and covered 13 miles. So it's hard to gauge. Avon is like uh, 13, or was that, about 14 or so square miles. So it's not quite the same. It just gives you an idea of how long it just stayed on the ground and just took things out. It just did terrible, absolute terrible devastation. And uh, there was, a, depending on how you count it, there was uh, 160 something people who died. Some died from the tornadoes or, or whatever, some died afterwards. And uh, there were 1,150 people who were injured. It was just crazy. Now, after that, there was a church, one of our sister churches in the community during the Joplin tornado, uh, and the senior pastor lived through it, and he, and he did a sermon where he talked about it, and then somebody interviewed him, and said so somebody grabbed two minutes of that interview, so it was like taking part of it down smaller, and he just talked about how terrible and devastating it was, and I thought this would be a really good setup for where I want to take us today in the book of Luke. So this is going to be hard, because I got some pictures for you, but then you're going to listen to him talking, so you just kind of have to hear and pick out what he's saying over top of the picture, so take a listen. The big Joplin tornado that occurred was, I guess, one of the top two worst tornadoes in the history of the United States occurred here in Joplin back in May 22nd of, of 2011. 7,000 homes were destroyed. We buried 161 of our neighbors. If I talk about it, I'm, I'm sitting here in my office and my lip will start bouncing. It's the worst thing I've ever gone through in my life. I, I, I held mamas that lost two babies and lost a, a husband. I, mamas that lost teenage sons. I, um, I watched families with no houses. Just, we had 300 families in our church that lost their houses. Hmm. It's the worst thing I've ever gone through bar none. And here's the thing that doesn't make sense. It's also the best thing I've ever gone through. And those two do not touch. I don't, don't, don't jump. I don't want anybody to jump ahead of me. They do not touch. I know that. It can never be the best thing. And yet it, and yet it is. And here's why. Because I was blown away at the kindness of people. Uh, Joplin was restored uh, for the most part because Christians came and stood with us. Uh, our, we, we were sometimes coordinating five and 6,000 volunteers a day out of our building for, for months, for months. I'd get there at 5.30 in the morning and the line of people willing to help us 
would not only encircle the building, but it would go all around our entire parking lot. We became a Walmart. Yeah. We became a Walmart within 24 to 48 hours with supplies. And the kindness of people, if I could build any, any statue to remember the past, I think what I would probably build is something that said the kindness of neighbors. And so the tornado was absolutely horrible. I, I, I could wipe tears here if I, if I let myself. And the kindness of people redeemed it. It redeemed it in ways that I just can't articulate how grateful I am. So yeah, tornadoes and grace, they go together. The benefit of being 47 years old, there's plenty of downsides. The benefit <laughs> is you've lived enough years to see uh, terrible things happen and consistently uh, godly people rise to the occasion. And uh, if that's never been your story, then I wanna challenge you today to make it part of your story. A few years ago, I got to sit down with our leader over uh, Care India or Reach India. Um, they've had to change their name on the state side, so they're synonymous. It's our missionary partners in India. And the gentleman who now leads the mission, uh, he didn't at the time. And I remember in this interview asking him, it was maybe 10 years ago, I got to sit with him. I said, uh, how did you even get involved in the mission? I remember him saying, you know, he grew up, he had a faith in Jesus, but it was pretty nominal. It wasn't something he was super serious about at the time. I think it was an earthquake had happened in Pakistan. He was from India. And I think he was working as, as a collection agent for a credit card company or a cell phone company. I can't remember the, the details now. But I remember him saying he just, it was almost like this voice in his head. He felt this crazy strong impression, they need me. So he hopped on his motorcycle and he rode out and he just started helping these Pakistani people. Now, if you don't know anything about Pakistan and India, they may be close in, in, in location. They are not close uh, in terms of getting along. But he felt, and, and later, he, you know, the voice of God tell him, you need to go do this. And I, I am convinced what he's seeing is, is God stirring and putting peace together in his life. God is directing the steps of him because now he leads a mission where we have uh, over 70 pastors who go and tell the good news of Jesus in places where it is very difficult and complex and sometimes their lives are threatened or families are threatened. Um, he has uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of girls that we save out of the human trafficking industry and we provide clothing and education so they can go to school and hopefully get out of the terrible situation they're in. They have a boy's home and a girl's home um, in order to help kids who are already in tragic environments. They build wells to give water to people. And uh, I love it because I think what God was doing is preparing his heart to lead this mission that he now leads and had no idea at the time. He was just responding to that voice inside him that said, go. And here's the thing. When the storms of life hit the hardest, the church shines the brightest. At least that's the way it's supposed supposed to be. I could tell you when I was at Bible college in Cincinnati, when there was a flood on the Ohio River and it just wreaked havoc, churches completely transformed their buildings. We've even had that story here when things happen in local schools and we've opened up our doors and brought people in. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be. When other people are asking the question, how do I stay safe? The church should be asking the question, how do I run into the mess? And it's gonna be hard and it's gonna be painful and it's gonna be stressful. And I'm not, I'm not putting down any of that. But what we see is Christians always ask the question, what can I do? Which goes really well to today's passage. So if you open your Bible with me to Luke chapter nine, 
We're just gonna pick up where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week, no big deal. Uh, there's plenty of stuff for me to offend you with today. You didn't have to be here last week. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. All right, Luke 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago had just come back to life. There's way more to unpack here than I have time. It's not my focus for today. I will say I've talked about this concept throughout the book of Luke. We started the book of Luke last December. We've kind of piecemealed or done some other things along the way, and we find ourselves only in chapter nine, roughly a year later. It's gonna be a while. We're gonna be in here. Okay, but the whole thing going on here is Elijah in the Old Testament, he's a prophet of God, and he never died. I don't know exactly how to explain to you. What I know is the, the Bible says that Elijah hopped on a chariot, a fiver, fire, <laughs> rode his way up into heaven. He never died. He was just taken up into heaven. He's one of two guys in the Bible to never die. And there are reasons through prophecies in the Old Testament to believe Elijah would come back before the Messiah would come. We'll get to Messiah in just a minute. But uh, we've kind of already covered this in a previous sermon. But Jesus says, John the Baptist was Elijah. See, John the Baptist came before Jesus. If you remember, uh, we talked about that. He's actually born before Jesus. He's Jesus's cousin. He's slightly older. And um, he was a prophet that went and said, prepare the way uh, for, for God. And, and then he baptized a bunch of people out in the wilderness. And so that's John the Baptist's story. So basically what's happening is Jesus is doing all these miracles. He's healing all these people. People are seeing that, but they don't know what to do with it. They've heard of John the Baptist. Maybe this is John the Baptist. It can't be John the Baptist. We heard that he was killed by Herod. So how can he be John the Baptist? Well, I don't know. Maybe he came back from the dead. Well, well, maybe he's one of the prophets. Which one? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Elijah? Is it Isaiah? Is it Moses? Who is it? And they're like, I don't know. So basically it's just a lot of confusion. And Jesus is just getting a feel for what's happening. And then he looks right at the disciples and he says, but what about you? Now, a couple things. I said this last week, I'll just hit it quickly. Jesus has many disciples. In fact, in the very next chapter, which we'll cover in January, we find out that there's like 70 or 72 disciples, right? There's a lot of disciples. Out of that 70 or 72, Jesus has 12 and they're the leaders of the others. And that's the group that he pours mostly into. In that 12, there's three, Peter, James, and John, and they get even more time and attention. So when he's speaking to the disciples, he's probably talking to the 12. And when he's talking to the 12, Peter is like the representative of the 12. I like Peter. Peter's my people, man. He's a speak first, think second kind of guy. Just start, you know, let's just see where this goes, Jesus. And we're going to see that a lot in chapter 9. There's a lot of Peter, Peter doing that. And so Peter's the first one to speak up. And he answers, you are God's Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is Hebrew. The word Messiah literally means the anointed one. It's equivalent in Greek, which is what the New Testament was mostly written in, Greek and Aramaic, is Christ. So if you ever heard the phrase, Jesus Christ, Jesus is Jesus' name, but Christ is not his last name. With me? All right. So Jesus Christ. It's actually Jesus the Christ. The is his middle name. No. Christ. Christ is just a title. It's the same as Messiah. Anointed one. If you go all the way back in the Old Testament, they would anoint kings. They would anoint priests. They were people. They would literally pour oil over their head. It would run down their beards. And it was symbolic that God's spirit and presence was with this person. And they had been called and anointed by God for a very specific role and purpose. And all of those priests and all of those kings pointed to Jesus. He is the ultimate anointed one because he is the only one who could be prophet, priest, and king at the same time. He's all of these things. He is not just 
another anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the anointed one. Now, when Matthew tells the same story, important here, this is coming from the book of Luke. I've been talking about this because some of you are newer to this and you're like, I don't know what to do with it. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four what we call gospels. What those are is they're four accounts of the life of Jesus. Two of these guys, Matthew, the first one, and John, the fourth one, they were actual disciples. They're one of the 12. They're probably there that day. The other two, Mark and Luke, they weren't there that day. They might have been in the larger disciple group, probably not at least for Mark, maybe not for Luke, but they at least were mentored by guys who were there that day. We know for a fact, Luke kicks off his book, and in the beginning of his book, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. He says, oh, most excellent Theophilus, I have gone and researched the things that you've heard about. So we know Luke has talked to Peter. We know Luke has talked to Paul. We know Luke has talked to Mary. And then he later wrote Puff the Magic Dragon. Okay, I made some of that up. But we do know he actually talked to Peter, Paul, and Mary. We know he did. Not that one from the 70s. For, he had to be a certain age to even get that one. But we know that he talked to those three because he writes a lot of their stories and their experiences in his book. So Peter's telling you a summary of what he heard, what he looked into. Matthew, who is actually there that day, he gives a longer, more detailed account. And I want to unpack that one. So we see this in Matthew chapter 16. It says this, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. I'll just pause for a second. This is critical because part of what Jesus is trying to say is, Simon, you aren't smart enough to figure this one out on your own. So earlier this year, what we did, you may notice on the front of the stage here, um, there are a bunch of names written on the stage. And then on these two pillars that were here on, on the sides, not the middle ones, on the side, outer pillars, there are names going all the way up and down there. You can see those if you're sitting near it. What we said is we just said to the church, is there anybody that God is putting on your heart that you know needs a relationship with Jesus? Let's write their name down. Let's just start praying for them. And we do. We still pray for them on a regular, regular basis. And a number of those people are starting to come to church. It's because... While some people are intellectual and they will have to think through and process. By the way, I am convinced God is pursuing Joe Rogan. It is absolutely amazing to me how many Christians are ending up on his podcast. And he just keeps interviewing, asking these great questions. I think God's chasing Joe Rogan. Now, what Joe Rogan does with it is up to Joe. But there is still a piece of this that has to be illuminated by God. God has to open up the heart and the mind of your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, I believe that God does that work. This, I do, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not reformed. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But I do believe God is chasing and pursuing everybody. Whatever judgment day looks like, whatever it looks like to have the story of our life unveiled before everybody else and before God, I think everybody's going to sit there and go, that is a fair judgment. Whatever God decides, every single person will go, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, look at all the ways that God chased and pursued and revealed that person to that person. I believe that's what's happening here. God has opened and revealed to Peter who Jesus really is. He's not just a prophet. He's not just whatever. He is Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that. But there's more to be said. He goes on, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. Now that's important because you've heard of Peter, right? You ever heard a joke, right? One day you get to heaven and at the pearly gates, there's this guy there and it's Peter. And he says, hey, what are you doing here? Or whatever the joke is, right? I don't know. Well, that Peter, his name isn't Peter. His name is Simon. Jesus names him Peter. Now, the word Peter in Greek is the feminine form of the word for pebble or teeny little rock. And that's really critical for what he says next. 
And I tell you, you are tiny rock, little pebble. And on this rock, and the word here for rock is the masculine form, and it means boulder. So you are tiny little rock, and on this boulder, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosed on earth, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I don't even know if loosed is a word, but apparently it is today. So a couple things. Catholics and Protestants have been fighting about this passage for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I don't even care to go down that argument. But here's basically how the argument sounds. So the Catholic Church claims papal authority. How's that for a big word? The Pope is the descendant of Peter, not by genealogy, but spiritual genealogy. So Literally, you could pass it down from generation to generation to generation to generation. Peter's authority went from this person to this person to this person to this person. The problem is Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and, and the Protestants and basically every other Christian group of the world goes, that doesn't make any sense. That's not even what, what, what we were trying to say here. We, were not, we weren't trying to say Peter's the guy in charge and he has all of this authority. The rock refers to this testimony of Peter where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The boulder on which the church is built is Jesus. Jesus, not Peter, to which I fall into that camp, which is why I'm a Protestant. Moving on. So the whole, some of you are coming from, we, I joke all the time, we're the largest Catholic church in Hendricks County. So some of you need to know <laughs> that is not true. I made that up. Okay. So, but that's relevant to this conversation because if the rock is Jesus, the heart of what he's really saying is the most critical thing. Let me start with the word church for a minute. The word church, that we translate church here, that's actually not the right thing. Not the way we think of it. I don't care what word you put in there, but the Greek word is actually the word ekklesia, ekklesia. Ekklesia literally means the gathering of the called out ones. How's that for a boring definition? Aren't you glad you came to put on your thinking caps, children? So what this literally means is God is rescuing and redeeming people from all over the world. They've been called out of the world into a walk with Jesus. And then they gather together wherever they are in their local town or community or whatever, and they are the called out ones. This is why you can go to any city, any town, anywhere in the world, meet another called out one and find yourself sitting at lunch with them having a fascinating and amazing unified conversation. You can be on the same team, on the same page very, very, very quickly. When we finally get over all those silly things that we disagree about and fight about, you can find unbelievable power and unity where two or more are gathered in Jesus's name. Now, the word ecclesia, I wish we would almost translate it better because if you look in other parts, it's only actually in the New Testament a few times, like even in the book of Acts. And it literally just refers to the gathering, the gathering, the gathering, the gathering. Because the gathering implies movement and activity. That's what the word implies. That's why <clears throat> he chose that word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the word we use for church actually comes from a German word during the Goth period, and it's the word kirka, kirka, which I don't know that I know history well enough to know this for sure. But what I think happened is that German word kirka moved to Ireland, where it became, or Scotland, where it became kerch. And then it became over to perhaps the English speaking, which made its way to the States, where kerch became church. You hear it? I'm a terrible Scottish. <laughs> Freedom! Okay, so. The reason any of this is even relevant at all is because it changed our understanding of church. Kirka, if you go look this up, I'm not making this up, 
Kirka implied a location. And what would happen all throughout Europe and then in early America, we would build the church in the center of the community and we would build everything else around the church, which makes sense. I mean, philosophically speaking, totally botched that one. I was like, I'm just going to keep going like I know what I'm doing. Philosophically speaking, it made sense. You put the church in the middle and you put business around it and you put homes around it. You put entertainment around it. And so when the church bells ring, it's a call to prayer and everybody knows, drop what you're doing and put God at the center again. The problem, the church had unbelievable influence and power and it became about a location instead of about scattering in everyday life. And so the way this played out for decades in America, right? Then you have Christian music and non-Christian music. You have Christian businesses and non-Christian businesses. You have Christian this and non-Christian that. But what Jesus was building was so much bigger than just a location with a name and a brand and a logo. Jesus was trying to build a gathering of people who would come together and say, I need you, you need me, and the world needs us. And so let's go filled with the power of God with the commands of God, with the confidence of God, with the boldness of God into our everyday lives. Everything isn't about here, 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 come here, come here. We're gonna plan your calendar. We're gonna plan your schedule. We're gonna plan your social life. No, 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 no. We're going to equip you to go be the church in everyday life so that as you're scattered, you're out there living and the world is a storm, it's gonna beat you up and you're gonna run into it with the name and the love and the power of Jesus at your disposal. And then you're gonna come back and gather together and you're gonna pour back into and you're gonna get encouraged and you're gonna get fed by God's word and convicted and you're gonna go back on and you're gonna do it again. And that's what Jesus was trying to build. Then he said, don't forget, he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades literally stands for the abode or the house of the dead. I've talked to this so many times I don't have time to unpack it all the way. Like I've done it way better, way deeper. Even in this series, go back and listen to all my sermons over the last 14 years, you'll hear lots of stuff. I've even taught this in some ways inaccurately. Let me try to make it as accurate as I possibly, possibly, possibly can. The gates of Hades is a more accurate translation than the gates of hell. Because when I say hell, you have in mind, when I die and Jesus returns and a final judgment occurs, some go to heaven, some go to hell. And the gates of hell will not stand against it. But that's not the word that's there. The word that's there is the gate of Hades. And Hades is the abode or the house of the dead. In Hebrew, they had a concept for this. It was Sheol, Sheol. And the whole idea is everybody's gonna die. And when you die, you go somewhere. Everything Jesus says next is gonna support us. I'm gonna tell you before we read it. What Jesus is simply saying is, when I die on a cross and three days later, go into the gates of Hades, the abode of the dead, Think of it that way. Don't think of hell. Think of it as the place where dead things go. I will resurrect from that place and I will have conquered death. That's why many New Testament passages quote the Old Testament passages that tell us that Jesus took the sting out of death. Because now when Jesus rises from the dead, anybody who places their faith and hope in Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, when they do that, death no longer has a sting because yeah, they're not in this world anymore, but they are now very much alive in the world that is to come waiting for us to join them in that place. Yeah, 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 now, yeah, yeah. Thank you for clapping for that because that should have been a powerful moment and I didn't set it up well, but... Stick with me now. So what happens is when you have a city, you build a wall around it to keep everybody safe. 
And what I used to think for the longest time is, yes, the church is God's people, and you open up the door, and there's a steeple, and right there's, okay, remember that thing? All right, so. What I used to think is, yeah, here's a, and so we build these walls around. Like, we're going to keep safe. Stay in your bubble. Like, get in these walls so that you can be safe. That's not what Jesus was doing. That's not what Jesus said. He said the gates of Hades will not prevail against the ecclesia. He didn't say the gates of the ecclesia will prevail against Hades. And if you don't get that, then you miss everything about it. The gates are the weak part in the walls. You got to get in the city somehow. And it's the weak spot. If you were going to attack a city, you would always attack at the gate. And so what Jesus is saying, it's very, very simple. He's saying every believer has been called out to plunder life from the grips of death. The gates of Hades are not more powerful than you. The gates of Hades can't win. You have the power and the authority of Jesus Christ to go rescue people from the gates of Hades. You have him in you to go do the deed that needs to be done to rescue what is dying and to bring it to him so it could be alive. Now, with, yeah, yeah, let's stop and give Jesus glory. If you don't understand that, that you don't understand what God is calling us to do in the world. Luke 9, Jesus says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell, tell this to anyone. Huh? We'll get to that. And he said, the son of man, that's his name for himself, his title for himself, son of man. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is one of the first times he talks about it because the disciples have in mind the Messiah, when he comes, he's gonna set up a kingdom. He, they weren't wrong. They just didn't understand. They're picturing a king. They're under Roman oppression. This Messiah is going to come, overthrow Rome, set up Israel as this powerful nation, and this new king, this new Messiah, he's going to rule. His kingdom will never, ever end. They didn't know how all the pieces work together, but they see Jesus doing his thing. When Peter makes his bold confession, he doesn't understand what he's doing. So Jesus is trying to flip his world upside down and say, Peter, you have no clue. Exactly. You're still thinking power. You're still thinking earthly power and, and maybe in you know, our day, missiles and guns and tanks and weapons. No, 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 no. This is going to be a kingdom that's not like that. This is going to be an upside down kingdom where we serve and we love and we give all in my name and in my pattern. To them, he said, then he said, actually to them all. So that's, that's one of the reasons he's talking to Peter. So he's talking now to the larger group of disciples he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. And this was radical. This was drop the mic moment. Why? Again, they're picturing a king who's gonna raise up an army. The disciples believe they're part of that army. How do we know? Well, part of it is when Jesus does make that final prophetic moment to Peter and he says, hey, tonight, these things are gonna happen. Peter later, he goes, no, 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 no way. I'm gonna go with you all the way to death. And Jesus goes, no, actually, before the night's over, you're gonna deny me three times. So when the army shows up, the Roman guard shows up to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword like, I'm gonna show you. And he cuts off a soldier's ear because Peter believes he's a soldier in a physical army. Jesus is trying to get Peter's attention as much as anybody else's, including us today. We are not going to win our battles with guns and swords and missiles and weapons, we are going to win our battle with love. 
And what that looks like is denying yourself and taking up your cross every stinking day. Let me give one example and then, uh, real quick, Father, would you please make this example apply in our hearts? God, I need you. I need you because I don't have time for 100 examples. Would you help this apply in Jesus' name? Amen. I want you to imagine for a minute, somebody has deeply, 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 deeply hurt you. Now, Jesus says, Jesus says, forgiveness is a critical marker of a follower of his, critical marker. Before I can go and be reconciled to you, when you have sinned against me, you know what I have to do in my heart? I have to begin with forgiveness. Now, there's a whole question for us to unpack some other sermon. I've done it before. I'll do it again. I promise. Where we talk about how do I forgive somebody who's hurt me when they're not repentant? But before I can even confront you, I have to start with, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to release you. And the only way that I could do that is through the power of Jesus because I look at my sin against God and I go, I have done so much to hurt and offend him. And yet he has forgiven me every time. What is what this person has done in light of what I have done to him? There may be no greater death to yourself than that. But I want you to imagine a, a group of people. Now, they're applying that in, in hundreds or thousands of different ways. And you're going to your boss and you're going to your coworker and you're going to your children and you're going to your neighbor and you're going to whomever and you are releasing them for what they've done to you. Oh my goodness, who does that? People who are dying to themselves every single day. Or what about people who are crazy wealthy, like most people I know in America, even though we don't think we are. And the way that they're denying themselves is instead of getting bigger and more and better all the time, they're using their resources to take care of and bless those who are less fortunate. Who does that? Now, I'm not talking about throwing pennies or dollars. I'm talking about people who are radically different. Who does that? People who are denying themselves every single day. And it's hard. Oh, my flesh gets in the way. It's so hard. But he's worth it. He goes on and he says, what good is it if someone gains the whole world and that lose or forfeit the very self? If I had to put this just in quick summary, basically what he's saying is the world tells you more and better, more and better. That's what you need. That's what'll make you happy. But when perhaps like you too, you finally find that you still haven't found what you're looking for and you go, maybe, 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 maybe more and better isn't actually all it's cracked up to be. Maybe I need something else. And when that finally dawns on you, Jesus is making you an offer. Come to me and I'll show you the way to real life. Real life doesn't come in getting more and better for myself. Real life comes in dying every single day and giving up my life for the benefit and benefit, betterment and benefit of everybody else. In verse 26, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man, again, that's his own title, Jesus, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the father and of the holy angels. One day, Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna look different. He's gonna be shining bright and white like in the transfiguration story we're about to read. But when that day comes, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, I'm gonna be ashamed of them. Here's the thing I wanna say here. This means verbally, but it means so much more than verbally because I know that from the rest of scriptures. You could say you love me, but if you don't actually show me you love me, big deal, what does it mean? So what it means is when I have the opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord, I need to take it even if it cost me something. But more than that, if I have the opportunity to love somebody, I need to show it. Because what good is it if I have accumulated things on this earth, but I don't realize that God has blessed me to be a blessing? 
This is exactly what James is trying to get to. And he says, you say you have faith and you're saved by your faith. Great, I will show you my faith by my works. I'm not saved by my works, but I will re- my works will reveal whether I am saved or not, whether I love Jesus or not, whether I got the Father's heart or not, whether I figured out it or not. So this brings us to this great question. How can I deny myself and find true life? How do I do that? With my remaining hour today, what I'm gonna do is just explain this to you. I'm glad some of you think that's funny. Yeah, some of you are like, preach it. Yeah, yeah. We got 14 years online. You can find plenty, all right? Let me try to be quick, but I wanna be helpful and practical, okay? First, I wanna remind you, our mission, our mission here at Kingsway is to become more like Jesus. But the way that we do that is we live out our growth path. So if you've been in starting point, you know our growth path. If you don't, you've been at Kingsway for a while or your brain just haven't gone yet, here's a summary of what you will hear in some of our, our, our starting point classes. So what we do is try to put hands and feet on it. So let's imagine the very first, it's not the first step, but I'm just gonna start here, okay? <clears throat> it's go, go. You could replace the word go with the word evangelism, but nobody really knows what evangelism is or means. Anyway, so we thought go was a better word. <clears throat> Excuse me. Go is, who do you know that needs the transforming love of Christ? What you'll see on the front of the stage are a bunch of names, and on those pillars, a bunch of names. Who do you know? Is it a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor? Now, the more irritating and broken the relationship, probably the more Jesus wants you to go. There are times, if you have been the offender, <clears throat> you might not be the person Jesus intends to reach somebody with the gospel. But you might want to start with an, I'm sorry, and not a, let me tell you about Jesus in that case. When I was back in Ohio about a month ago, uh, I needed a haircut really, really bad. There's not much left up there. I know it's shocking uh, that I would need one, but I did, and it was getting pretty bad, pretty nappy up there, and I was like, oh, I gotta get this haircut done. But I was feeling really, really sick. I ended up in urgent care a day or two later. So I just went online, though, and I found a little local place, and uh, I I had these descriptions of their hair whatever, whatever, the barbers, I don't know what you call them. And the guy, I don't know, I felt like drawn to this one name. And it was funny because he was like the rookie, like who didn't know what he was doing. And they kind of teased him about it on the website. I'm thinking, this is probably not the best description of this guy. But for some reason, I felt drawn to him. So I made an appointment <clears throat> and I showed up the next day. 10 minutes in, I knew exactly why God arranged that appointment. And I'm like, uh, now I don't feel good. I'm tired. I'm sick. I just want my hair cut. And I'm sitting there literally wrestling with God in the chair. I'm like, I'm not doing it. No, can't I just have a 30-minute haircut, God? <laughs> like, you need a little extra time. No, like, I don't understand. So sure enough, God's spirit wins. And next thing I know, I'm like sharing the gospel with this man. Turns out he was raised going to church by his grandmother, spent some years of some pain and some brokenness. And I had said yes, even though I was sick and on vacation, I said yes to speak for a friend who needed a Sunday off. And so the next day I was speaking somewhere and I just said, you, you need to come to this church where I'm speaking. I don't, know, I don't really know much about them. I don't know where you live. You just need to come. I don't know if he came. I have no idea. By the end of it, I started sensing like he, he wasn't buying into that. And so I said, look, I don't care if you don't come and hear me speak. It's not about me. I don't need the credit. But would you go back to grandma's church tomorrow? Like, just go. Like, I started asking him, do you think it's an accident? Like, dude, I went online and I'm like, just, I felt drawn to your name. You think it's an accident that we're sitting here having this conversation? Do you think that's an accident? Like, I don't believe in accidents, man. I'm telling the stories like this thing happened in my church and this thing happened in my life. Like God wants you. Like God wants Joe Rogan. God wants you. God wants you. He's chasing you. I have no idea what he did with it. But I'm so hopeful that one day in heaven, some guy's gonna walk up with this really cool haircut and be like, hey, thank you. 
Like, will you be bold enough to not be ashamed of Jesus? And so imagine everybody's doing that, right? And they're inviting their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers and whatever, their babysitters and their whatever. And people start coming to this church. Our numbers are growing all the time. Will they meet a bunch of people who love Jesus? Because when they do, what you need to do is you need to connect. You need to connect. And so what connection is, is connecting is, imagine a group of people helping each other through life's ups and downs. The storms of life happen. Real quick, my, um, uh, I'm not going to go into the details. My family's super private about stuff like this, but uh, my mother-in-law has been in the hospital the last few days. We got a phone call and a meeting on Thursday, so we got my wife ready and got her out the door. She's been there for the last few days, and um, I, seriously, uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. We, we're hopeful she's going to get out in the next day or two, and um, it's just been weird. So, man, God bless all you single parents. I don't know how you do it. Like, I'm struggling to survive for three days. I don't know how y'all do it for a life. Um, but it was the church. My phone's blowing up with text messages and phone calls. Uh, my mom and dad bought us meals. Um, Steve and Susan Road took us to dinner last night and got my boys pizza and then gave us all the leftovers so that I didn't have to cook, which, trust me, is probably saving a life. And uh, <clears throat> even this morning, I had people coming up to me going, hey, I'm making a bunch of food for Thanksgiving. Can I bring your family food for Thanksgiving? I, that's not why I'm telling the story. I'm telling the story to say, man, if you don't have that, you are missing it. I look around this room at some of the faces that I see and know, people who've lost babies and parents and they've had car accidents and financial struggle, struggles. And I go, man, I'm so glad those people were connected, but some of you aren't. The church is supposed to be the ones who run to the pain, not away from it and say, look, my life is busy and crazy enough, but you're worth it. How can I help? Now, imagine all that happening. There's gonna come a load from all of this, right? I need to talk about giving. And some of you are going, I knew it. Sooner or later, the church is going to talk about money. Like, if you're visiting with us today, I'm not even talking to you. So you just go like this, la, 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 la. It's fine. It's fine. But I am talking to everybody who says Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That's who I'm talking to. Giving is the way that we show the world that we believe we are not here on accident. Every single thing in God's kingdom takes money. That's not a knock. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. When God gets your heart, what you start to ask the question is not when are they finally going to ask for money? You start to ask the question, what can I do? And it's going to happen privately, like people who take us out for pizza and give me the leftovers. And it's going to happen corporately, where we join together to support missionaries and your staff and this great building that people come to and use for the glory of God. I said this last week, but I don't know if you know this, but 30% of our giving comes in <clears throat> in the last two months of the year, and that fuels us for the first six months of next year. So as you're praying about it and thinking about it, may God stir in your heart. I never want you to give out a guilt or compulsion. I, God loves a cheerful giver, Paul says. Somebody who goes, God, you have so radically changed my life that I now realize if I gain the whole world, but I don't have you, then what am I really doing? Remember, all this comes out of acknowledging Jesus. He says, if you're not willing to acknowledge me before men and how you live your life, then I'm not gonna be willing to acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Transformed lives live transformed lives. But then this leads to the last one, and that is serving. So imagine a church that's generous and taking part in the hurts and the pains of the world. And imagine a church that's connecting together and they're loving each other and they show up. And I was like, why are, your, why are all these people, who are all these people here? You know, the storm hit your house. Oh, these are people from my church. Where who are all these people right now when this loved one died? Oh, these are all people from my church. Imagine the testimony of all of that. And then they bring and their neighbors start coming. Will they see a smiling face at the door that says, welcome to Kingsway? 
Will they hear a gifted and talented band and singers when they, on stage when they show up to worship? Will the lights and the power be on because a security team and a team has managed the building well? Speaking of security team, will they be safe? Will they feel safe? What about like kids ministries when they take their kids and they're, they're wondering like what's going to happen? Or maybe some single mom, like I joked a moment ago, is just stressed out and she shows up and she's like, I just need an hour with God. I just need to hear from the Lord. But she goes to drop her kids off and it's just chaotic in the room. She's like, man, I don't know if I'm going to leave my kid here. And she sits in the room and she's not sure she can hear from Jesus because her kids are just, wow, is that a safe place for my kids? Now imagine a church that is filled with all of these roles and more just happening in those places. And people show up and they go, there's something different about here. It's not like pulling teeth for my kid's soccer league where we can't seem to get enough coaches. It's like, man, they're turning people away because everybody's saying, how can I help? Serving is the way that we show the world we believe we are not here on accident. Remember Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this profound thing. For even the son of man, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the king of the universe, didn't come so everybody could serve him. He came so he could give his life to everybody else. And I wonder how many of you today will be willing to join him. When you leave here today, what we did in our foyer, knowing this message was coming, we just took different ministries that we have in the church and we put them throughout the foyer. There's a little QR code, you know, like you pull out and use a menu at a local restaurant. You can QR code those and get any information you want. You can stop and have a conversation. You can even play drums over at our little worship portion of those. Somebody was doing that earlier. But what would it look like instead of leaving today and saying, well, that sermon is for someone else. What if you stopped today and said, why not me? I'll tell you what, we're gonna sing a song to close. And would you just stand with me? I'm gonna pray because I'm really, really tired. I don't know if it shows. Sucking on a monster energy before this going, Father, carry me. But I need him to do in you what I can't do with words. So let's pray. Father God, um, thank you for your faithfulness to this church. For 50 years, you have used Kingsway in Avon, in Indianapolis, Indiana, the United States, and to the ends of the earth. And we're not done yet. So God, I pray right now that your spirit would stir in the hearts in the same way you revealed to Peter that Jesus was Lord Father. I pray right now you would reveal to each man and woman, a child listening. I pray you would reveal to them just what you're calling them to do. And they would feel convicted, deeply convicted to respond and to respond now, today, not next week, not a month from now. And I know, I know it's hard and it's stressful, but the gates of Hades can't prevail. So let us be bold as we go. We love you. Praise you in Jesus' name.